Clearly, there's been a revolution in understanding the molecular processes underlying breast cancer cell growth. And some of the most interesting work relates to the oldest form of molecular targeted therapy, endocrine manipulation. I met with Dr. John Mackey for his perspective on the field, and he began our conversation by commenting on the major changes that have occurred in adjuvant endocrine therapy of postmenopausal patients. Adjuvant endocrine therapies really changed a lot over the last decade. What we found is that we have a whole new class of drugs for use in postmenopausal women. So for those women whose estrogen levels are really quite low because their ovarian function is gone, they still have a trickle of estrogen that's produced by the fat and by the adrenal glands. And what we now know is that there are three very good, very effective drugs that are used in the market now to suppress estrogen levels. And they're anastrozole, which is also known as arimidex. There's letrozole, which is also known by the trade name as Femera. And there's exomestane, which is also known as aromacin. Anyway, these are three aromatase inhibitor pills that are taken once daily. And they've all been shown to really suppress the estrogen levels in postmenopausal women. Now, what's quite exciting about the last 10 years is that we used to have, as our only option for postmenopausal women in terms of hormonal therapy, the drug tamoxifen, which, although a very good drug and it shows a very significant survival advantage, it prevents recurrences, prevents contralateral breast cancers, still has some Achilles heels. And one of the big problems is with prolonged tamoxifen usage, it can trigger endometrial cancers. The other major issue is that it triggers blood clots. So at the end of the day, tamoxifen is a good drug, very effective, but a few downsides. The nice thing about the aromatase inhibitor story is that each of the three aromatase inhibitors we've discussed has now been shown in basically a set of several trials to improve the chances that a woman would remain free of breast cancer when either used instead of tamoxifen or to replace some of the five-year course of tamoxifen or even when used after five years of tamoxifen. So it's now to the point where almost any woman in your practice, if she's had breast cancer within the last five years and she's postmenopausal and has estrogen receptor or progesterone receptor positive disease, that there might be a role here for an aromatase inhibitor. Now, the data is maturing over time, and we've got basically 10 adjuvant trials that have, you know, reported in one fashion or another. And probably the most exciting thing is that there are several groups that have actually taken the results from these trials, put them all into a hat and sort of shaken them up in a meta-analysis to show that not only is disease-free survival improved by this new class of drugs, there's emerging and rather convincing evidence that overall survival is improved as well. Now, that would all be well and good if you didn't have a few downsides that the practitioner has to keep in mind, because when you're looking after these patients after the diagnosis of breast cancer, when they're on an aromatase inhibitor, the side effects are a bit different, and you have to think about these women differently than if they were just on tamoxifen. The first thing is that tamoxifen has a bit of an estrogenic tickle, and it actually improves bone strength, and un like tamoxifen, the aromatase inhibitors, if anything, don't have the bone building problem. They actually, by dropping estrogen, lead to a more rapid loss in bone. So the normal aging process in postmenopausal women leads to bone loss, but all of the aromatase inhibitors, to one degree or another, do drop bone density. And Therefore, postmenopausal women should basically, if they're going on an aromatase inhibitor or they're already on an aromatase inhibitor, at the very least they need a baseline DEXA scan, which is a bone density test. 
And if it turns out that they have signs of early osteoporosis or even osteopenia, there's now data from three trials that these women should be on bisphosphonates to keep their bone strength up. And the available bisphosphonates, they probably all work to some extent, and there isn't a lot of evidence that one would be particularly better than any other in this setting. So keep in mind that if a woman ends up on a rheumatase inhibitor, they could end up with bone loss over time. You've got to watch that and perhaps even monitor it maybe annually with mammography or every two years. And if bone density is dropping in a rapid fashion or creeps into that osteoporotic or osteopenic range, then it's time probably to intervene with vitamin D and exercise and calcium supplementation certainly, but probably with a bisphosphonate as well. What about the issue of duration of aromatase inhibitor therapy and tamoxifen? We kind of settled in on five years. What about with the AIs? Well, we've done a number of trials of tamoxifen duration, and we found out that two years was better than one. That was after we found out one was better than none. Then we did five versus two, and then the 10 versus five. There's a number of trials that leave that a bit of an open question, but you're right. The gold standard is five years of tamoxifen. Now, for duration of aromatase inhibitors, the jury's a little bit still out. We've got a couple of trials, one called the ATAC trial and the BIG-198, that are showing that if you start a woman on either anastrozole or letrozole immediately after their surgery and their recovery from surgery, they do quite well and better than tamoxifen. But we've also got trials that say if they're halfway through their five-year course of tamoxifen, switching them to any one of the three drugs is going to provide a disease-free advantage. And we now have data for exomestane, letrozole, and anastrozole that even after five years, switching to an aromatase inhibitor is going to improve the disease-free survival. Long-term duration question, the question is now, is 15 years better than 10 years of hormonal therapy? For the women who start on five years of tamoxifen, switch over to generally letrozole for five years. And it's an open question in an ongoing trial whether we should actually leave them on the letrozole drug for yet another five years after that. Can you talk a little bit about the time course of recurrence, particularly in women with ER-positive disease? It seems like there's been a kind of a database that's coming out that's making people more aware of that threat in the long term. Well, we know from experience that estrogen receptor positive and estrogen receptor negative breast cancers are two biologically different subtypes of breast cancer. And the ER negative disease tends to have a relatively early recurrence. If it's going to recur, it tends to happen. The highest risk of recurrence is, in fact, around two, two and a half years. And then if you're staying free of disease over the long haul, in fact, after five and ten years, your annual risk of recurrence is actually decreasing with ER-negative disease. That means that for ER-negative disease, you certainly have to be aggressive with your treatments and hope that you can cure them quickly. With estrogen receptor-positive breast cancer, the natural history is quite a bit different. And in fact, we now understand that the ongoing risk of recurrence with an ER-positive breast cancer can be very substantial, and it extends well beyond 10 and even beyond 15 years. So in the long haul, it may not be any better to have an estrogen receptor-positive breast cancer than an estrogen receptor-negative breast cancer if you take away hormonal therapy. You're just as likely to have a recurrence. If you throw in effective hormonal therapy, initially perhaps with tamoxifen or an aromatase inhibitor, and perhaps continue these hormonal therapies for a long time, we are fully expecting, though, that the rate of recurrence is going to drop substantially for that population. 
What about the issue of delayed endocrine therapy, you know, starting a woman who's had tamoxifen in the past or maybe hasn't had hormonal therapy who's now out in the 5 or 10 or even longer mark? Well, it's a bit of an open question. I mean, it's looking like the aromatase inhibitors can reduce the chance of the breast cancer coming back, whether you use them immediately after diagnosis, whether you use them after two or three years, whether you use them after five years. And there's some data to suggest that even beyond five years, you can put women on an aromatase inhibitor and expect a benefit. While it's not proven in clinical trials beyond that five-year time when people have been on tamoxifen, there could be a theoretical benefit to these women. And you'll find that even in the absence of formal proof in clinical trials, that the standard of practice is changing. And certainly in the United States, we're seeing a lot of people using these aromatase inhibitors, even if a woman had her breast cancer seven, even ten years ago. In Canada, where I practice, that's not being taken up because of the absence of clinical trial evidence, and there are actually ongoing clinical trials looking at aromatase inhibitors well beyond the time of completion of tamoxifen in the hopes that we can formally prove that it's going to help these women. There is this late relapse in the absence of extension of your adjuvant hormonal therapy. The late relapses certainly do occur. Can you talk a little bit about the side effects that are seen with aromatase inhibitors? Well... The first side effect we talked about before was this bone density issue. And for that reason, I think it's reasonable we talk to virtually all of these women, whether they're on aromatase inhibitors or not, it's a good idea for postmenopausal women to be on supplemental vitamin D, maybe 400 units or 800 units. They should be on calcium, perhaps 1,500 milligrams a day. But that takes care in part of the bone loss issue. But these women will often develop musculoskeletal aches and pains. And The interesting thing is when we were doing the initial trials with aromatase inhibitors, this wasn't a recognized side effect. And I was treating my patients, and when I looked back on the case report forms and what I was recording, I was saying, well, Mrs. X is having more problems with her arthritis. You know, I prescribed her extra-strength Tylenol or Tylenol-3s. But the reality was I didn't recognize, and it took a while before the trials matured to the point where we realized that the aromatase inhibitors themselves were causing arthralgias. So painful joints, generally not with signs of inflammation, but nonetheless, the pain can be substantial. And for some women, the aches and pains are enough that they're not comfortable continuing on an aromatase inhibitor. We don't seem to see that side effect with tamoxifen. So for some women in my practice, they've had so many problems with arthralgias that we've had to actually put them back on tamoxifen. Do you find that if you switch them to another aromatase inhibitor, that helps? Occasionally it does, but not universally. Now, there's two classes of aromatase inhibitors. There are the non-steroidal aromatase inhibitors, and the examples of that in use now are Arimidex, or Anastrozole, and Letrozole, or Femara. So these two molecules are quite similar. But there is a third member of the class, which is Exemestane, which is actually looking like the cortisone molecule. So it's basically a hormonal analog, and Mechanistically, it has subtle differences in its action on the aromatase enzyme. So what I tend to do if someone's having problems with anastrozole or letrozole, I'll try exemestane or vice versa in the hopes that these subtle differences in the mechanism of the drugs might allow them to have fewer side effects. Occasionally that works, but if it doesn't work, then you're left with the discussion with your patient that she needs to learn to live with those symptoms and manage them with physical activity and analgesics, 
or else come off the drug and switch to something else. Any presumed mechanism of why these agents would cause arthralgias? There's a lot of work being done on this area because it's really one of the biggest problems that impede nearly universal acceptance of these drugs. It's the one thing that patients seem to notice when they go on these hormonal agents. The mechanism seems to be related to estrogen depletion. We know that under natural physiologic situations, when women do go through menopause, that arthralgias can happen. We know that arthritis incidence flares around the time of menopause, and it's more specifically pinpointed by menopause than it is by age. So clearly there is a biological suppressive effect for joint inflammation with premenopausal levels of estrogen. However, the exact mechanism is not known. It doesn't seem to be bone fractures or micro fractures within the bone itself. It doesn't seem to be loss of tendon strength or any obvious injury when we look at clinical samples. And there's a lot of work being done on the issue. It was hoped that the bisphosphonates that make a natural pair for the aromatase inhibitors for the bone loss might somehow protect the soft tissues and joints and reduce the aches and pains, but the trials haven't shown that. What about vasomotor symptoms with the AIs compared to tamoxifen? Well, about a third of women who go on tamoxifen will notice a substantial change in whatever hot flashes they may have. If they're premenopausal, then generally they're not having hot flashes. Putting them on tamoxifen, the rate of hot flashes is often, you know, 60-70%. But in postmenopausal women, about a third of women really notice a troubling increase in hot flashes when you put them on tamoxifen. With the aromatase inhibitors, they're Depending on the trial you look at, either subtle advantages, slight reduction in the rate of hot flashes with the aromatase inhibitors, or nothing at all. So although some women may feel their hot flushes improve when you switch from either tamoxifen to aromatase inhibitors, you can also see the other way around as well. And it's not a guarantee that an aromatase inhibitor would not give hot flushes. What about gynecologic problems and endometrial cancer with the AIs and comparing to tamoxifen? Well, as you know, tamoxifen can trigger endometrial cancers. Certainly when it's taken, particularly in the postmenopausal population, and the longer you're taking it, the more likely you are to get endometrial abnormalities. In fact, tamoxifen can trigger vaginal discharges, thickening of the endometrium, changes that lead the gynecologist to get concerned in doing DNCs to make sure there isn't an endometrial carcinoma there. And in fact, one of the trials showed that women on Tamoxifen, when you follow them long enough, uh, about 5% of those women ended up with a hysterectomy. That was the ATAC trial. Interestingly, on that trial, the women who got, in this case, a nastrozole for five years had a much lower rate of endometrial abnormalities. They had less problems with vaginal discharge, and they certainly didn't have the hysterectomy rate. In fact, it was about a quarter of what was seen in the tamoxifen arm. But the problem was that these women end up with vaginal dryness. So they end up with the exact opposite issue. And with the vaginal dryness and the really quite profound suppression in estrogen levels, these women can have thinning of the vaginal mucosa, and it can get to be a problem with intercourse. Dyspareunia, painful intercourse, is more common when these women are on aromatase inhibitors. You know, in the past, surgeons have prescribed tamoxifen What about aromatase inhibitors in Canada in particular? Do surgeons prescribe them? Do you think they should be prescribing them? 
Well, I think that these drugs are safe and effective drugs, and if you know just a few precautions about them, then there's no reason that any physician shouldn't be able to care for their breast cancer patient with an aromatase inhibitor. So in our practice, yes, in Canada, there are some surgeons who are monitoring the switch from tamoxifen or even starting the aromatase inhibitors. The things to be aware of are, first of all, the woman has to be postmenopausal. And that must mean that you're absolutely certain that their estrogen activity is not going to somehow come back. So that means if they've had an oophorectomy, you're safe. If they're 60, you're safe. But if they're, let's say, 52 and they tell you they haven't had a period for a while, you need to actually check biochemically to make sure that their LH and FSH are up and their estradiol is low. So that's the first issue. Then you have to address the fact that some of these women will get chemotherapy before they're going to be on an aromatase inhibitor. And so if they're in that borderline age of maybe 45 to 50 and you give chemotherapy and they're not having menstrual periods, just because they're castrate that day doesn't mean two or three months down the road their ovaries aren't going to recover from the chemotherapy and start producing estrogen. And if you give an aromatase inhibitor to a woman whose ovaries are actually producing estrogen, they're ineffective. There's no reason to think they would help. Why is that? Well, basically, the ovarian production of estrogen would far outstrip what's produced in the adrenal glands and the fat and the peripheral tissues that are normally inhibited by aromatase. And essentially, your drug will be an expensive placebo. And it's actually worse than that. There are cases of people who have inadvertently been put on aromatase inhibitors and are premenopausal, and it causes hyperstimulation of the ovaries. So the ovaries get cysts, and there's even a case report where the cysts have ruptured, the woman has had peritonitis. So basically, you need to know that the ovaries are either gone or shut off for good before you use these. The second point is, if you know they're postmenopausal, you need to know that the tumor that the woman actually had is estrogen receptor or progesterone receptor positive. If that's the case, then you know an aromatase inhibitor is probably a very reasonable thing. We've just done a study called the SABER study that shows that even if women have thin bones, osteopenia, that giving them an aromatase inhibitor plus an oral bisphosphonate is enough to maintain their bone strength. So you can safely give them even if they're osteopenic. If they're formally osteoporotic, we didn't feel it was ethical to keep these women in a randomized fashion, but by giving them a bisphosphonate as well, we managed to maintain their bone density, although we don't have a comparator arm with that group. What's the usual standard in terms of bone density monitoring with people on AIs? Well, first of all, the guidelines that have been written for monitoring of bone health in postmenopausal women in the general population would say that if a woman is postmenopausal, she probably should have a DEXA scan as a baseline, even in the absence of other risk factors. Now, the risk factors you worry about are things like smoking, strong family history, thin build, uh, sedentary lifestyle. But at the end of the day, virtually every postmenopausal woman would fall into the situation where they warrant a bone scan irrespective of their breast cancer history or their aromatase inhibitor use. But certainly, if they've had breast cancer and maybe gone through chemotherapy, then their bone density is going to be probably impaired. And before you start an aromatase inhibitor on these women, I think it's mandatory you get a DEXA scan. And then how often after that? 
Well, most of these women will have reasonably good bones. So in that case, we recommend calcium and vitamin D, which would be the same for any postmenopausal woman. Encourage exercise for any number of reasons. But I would repeat it after two years in a woman with normal bone. But if they have osteopenia, osteoporosis, certainly then annual DEXA scans, I believe, would be mandatory. You mentioned the issue about ER and kind of leads into the question of ER testing. Where are we right now in terms of quality control and for that matter as well as HER2 testing? Well, the issue of estrogen receptor testing is a very, very critical one because modern management of a woman with early-stage breast cancer really hinges on two predictive assays. They're the tests that tell prescribing physicians what drugs to use. And we have two good predictive assays. We have the estrogen receptor status, and we have the HER2 oncoprotein status or HER2 oncogene status. And at the end of the day, there have been a lot of rude awakenings, I think, in the last decade when we've realized that the testing that we had done in past is largely inadequate and relatively difficult to standardize. The problem is the old method of testing for estrogen receptor was to actually take the tumor, grind it up, and see if it bound to a radioactive estrogen-like compound. And it was a charcoal dextran assay, and you could very accurately and quantitatively tell people how much estrogen receptor is in this tumor. But the problem is that tumors are getting smaller and smaller because our mammographic techniques are better, our surgeons are also better at dealing with these tiny tumors and picking them up early. And so at the end of the day, we've got less tissue than ever before, and many women are not eligible for that old but really gold standard test. In fact, we've switched to something called immunohistochemistry, where we take a formalin-fixed, paraffin-embedded tissue, you know, your standard pathological specimen, and then we use an antibody to detect the amount of the estrogen receptor. And the problem is, if the tumor sat over the weekend in formalin, the staining's different than if it was overnight. And there are quality control issues with immunohistochemistry that are very difficult to sort out. So even good labs disagree with the quantitation of estrogen receptor and progesterone receptor status, and we call that test discordance. And when we have test discordance, it's sometimes difficult to say who's right and who's wrong. And so we've done our best by putting in new ways to trying to quantitate this rather than the surgeon handing the specimen to the pathologist who says, well, this looks positive and this looks negative. We now try to estimate the number of cells out of 100 that are positive, and if so, how strongly positive are they? And we've got something called an ALRID score, which is the best we can do with immunohistochemistry right now, but even good labs disagree. So we've got a bit better, though, with the HER2 testing. In the bad old days, we did rely, I think, too heavily on immunohistochemistry, and it can make errors in the same way you have problems with estrogen receptor. But we now have what I believe to be a gold standard test, which is something we call fluorescent in situ hybridization. We call it FISH. And basically, rather than look for protein, which can depend on how well pickled the sample is and it will have errors associated with immunohistochemistry, we actually look at the DNA. And the interesting thing about HER2-driven breast cancers, the problem is that there are, in a HER2-driven breast cancer, multiple copies of the DNA. So when you look at copy number in the nucleus using this DNA-based fluorescent hybridization technique we call FISH, it's the FISH-amplified patients that are truly HER2-positive, and they're the ones that warrant Herceptin discussions. Let's talk a little bit about endocrine therapy of premenopausal patients. Well, younger women with breast cancer 
have a slightly lower rate of actually having strong hormone receptors. The frequency of hormone receptor positive disease basically goes down with the younger that the patient is. But we do know that even in premenopausal women, at least 50% have estrogen receptor that you can detect on their tumor. And obviously, that's a scenario destined for failure. These are women producing high levels of estrogen. Their tumor is sensitive to estrogen. And the first intervention for these women that had been shown to be effective was actually oophorectomy. It's taking the ovaries out. And that clearly shows that doing so will reduce the chance that a woman will get breast cancer recurrence in the future. It even provides a survival advantage. And those are generally old trials, 30 and 40 years old, and we're comfortable with those data. But the problem is that a precipitous menopause in a young woman can carry a lot of problems with hot flashes as well as the risk for bone health and perhaps cardiovascular health years later. So other alternatives have been explored over the years. And at present, the gold standard for endocrine therapy for this women is tamoxifen. You can't safely give an aromatase inhibitor. Many of these women can be treated if they're very low risk with tamoxifen alone. But if they do need chemotherapy, the optimal way to give the tamoxifen is after the chemotherapy is finished. What about the issue of using ovarian suppression? Well, it would make sense that if a young woman has a hormone receptor positive tumor, that you should be shutting down the ovarian production of estrogen. It just makes sense. But if you can summarize the trials, and there are many trials looking at using drugs, which we call luteinizing hormone releasing LHRH agonists, so luteinizing hormone releasing agonists, we find that the LHRH agonists are basically a chemical way of producing a castration. And it would make sense that if you added these to tamoxifen, you'd get sort of a full endocrine blockade, and these women should do better over the long term. Now, in the North American population, we've never done that routinely, and the clinical trials that have been done haven't convincingly shown that if a woman gets chemotherapy and gets tamoxifen, which is the current gold standard, that throwing in an LHRH agonist is going to make a difference. So unfortunately, even though it makes sense and it should work, we haven't really convinced ourselves that it's a benefit. So for the women who require chemotherapy and who have hormone receptor positives, the gold standard in North America, to my mind, still remains five years of tamoxifen after completion of chemo. Now, in Europe, a lot of work has been done on hormonal therapies, and there is, I guess, a stronger belief that LHRH agonists can not only be used successfully after chemotherapy, but that in some cases they can replace some of the older flavors of chemotherapy that we had 20 and 30 years ago. But at the end of the day, it's still an open question, and there's three ongoing trials right now to fully define how LHRH agonists should be used in the premenopausal women. Let's talk a little bit about the use of chemotherapy in these women with ER-positive tumors. There's been a lot of controversy about it, and also we have a new assay, the Acotype DX assay, that's been used in these patients. Can you talk a little bit about that issue? Well, it's quite clear that young women irrespective of their hormone receptor status, benefit from chemotherapy in a statistical sense. If you do the meta-analysis in women under 50, there is benefit. If you do the meta-analysis in women over 50, it's clear that even if estrogen receptor is present and these women get tamoxifen, that chemotherapy is of benefit as well. And so it used to be relatively simple to just think that these women might benefit from chemo if they're high risk and throw in tamoxifen if they're estrogen receptor positive. But 
We've had some new results recently that have given us a better appreciation for the relative benefits of chemotherapy to endocrine therapy in various populations. And if I can just briefly describe where the field appears to be going, it looks as if the older a woman is, the less benefit they appear to be getting from chemotherapy if they're also estrogen receptor positive. So the benefits of chemotherapy, even in ages of 65 to 70, are there on the meta-analysis, but if you look very closely at these populations, if they're estrogen receptor positive, the actual benefit from even modern-day chemotherapies is relatively small. And similarly, if you have relatively low levels of estrogen receptor expression, so these are the weak ER positives, even older women get some very substantial benefit from chemotherapy. So there's an increasing understanding that the biology of breast cancer is not just an on-off switch with the estrogen receptor and that shades of gray are closer to the reality where the estrogen receptor represents a continuum rather than a discrete variable. Now, along with that is the really exciting fact that you can take a tumor and you can do a fancy nucleic acid-based test called Oncotype DX, which can help the clinician and the patient decide what is the additional value of chemotherapy. For a woman who has a high-risk tumor, so maybe a 5-centimeter tumor and three lymph nodes involved, this test is irrelevant. Obviously, their clinical characteristics are such that they warrant aggressive treatment. However, particularly for the node-negative population, where the relative benefits of chemotherapy can be quite small, this Oncotype DX allows what's called a recurrent score to be provided after assessment of the tumor. And this recurrent score is based on an assessment of many genes that actually will allow a prediction of how much benefit would come from adjuvant therapy. And this data, the Oncotype DX score, is now being used by oncologists quite routinely to help decide for the relatively low-risk women with node-negative disease whether or not they should go ahead with chemotherapy. Now, is there any point in doing an oncotype in a patient with a HER2-positive tumor? At present, if you have your immunohistochemistry lab give you a 3-plus positive or you have a FISH-positive patient in front of you, I don't believe that oncotype DX actually is of much use. Now, admittedly, HER2 pathway is something that oncotype DX will explore, but the reality is we've now got a very effective drug called Herceptin or Trastuzumab, and this medication makes a big difference to women who have HER2-driven breast cancer. And essentially, HER2-positive disease behaves poorly. These women tend to be resistant to hormones if they do have estrogen receptor expression. And without Herceptin, even with chemotherapy, they do very poorly. We now know from a suite of five trials that adding in Trastuzumab to various types of chemotherapy will markedly improve their prognosis, reduce the chance of recurrence by between half and 40%, reduce the risk of death between 30 and 44% or where the trials are at right now. So for such a woman with HER2-driven breast cancer, I would save the $3,000 that the Oncotype DX would cost the system and just go ahead with your Herceptin-based chemotherapy. Now, right now, we know that the oncotype is only really utilized in the population that's been proven to be effective, which is node-negative ER-positive tumors. What are the clinical situations within that subset that it's most useful in? Well, I think that 
If you're looking at the women with node-negative ER-positive tumors, the first thing to look at is tumor size. If these are very big tumors, you know, two, three centimeters, I would almost suspect that given that they've got stage two disease, they weren't a discussion about chemotherapy. And in that case, I wouldn't personally send these women off for Oncotype DX. The question in my mind is women who have the T1 lesions, which are two centimeters or less, and particularly the ones that aren't high grade. So for a woman who has a lower intermediate grade tumor less than two centimeters, I think this would be the subset of ER positive breast cancers where the Oncotype DX would return information that could very well inform your chemotherapy decision. It's been stated or thought by some people that maybe the technology of Oncotype is going to replace the technology that we're using right now to measure ER and HER2 in the future. Do you think that's where things are heading? I think it's very possible. Even though technically it sounds more difficult to do a nucleic acid assay where you're actually basically taking several sections of the tumor from the tumor block and grinding it up and extracting the RNA and then doing something called a quantitative RT-PCR assay and then doing a readout. The nice thing about doing it in that complex fashion is that you have internal controls. And you actually know, are you measuring tumor or not? You also know whether you just have a bad sample or a good sample. And it basically takes out some of the variability that comes with fixation differences and with some of the biological problems that immunohistochemistry faces. So at the end of the day, albeit more expensive and more complex, I believe that nucleic acid-based technologies like Oncotype DX or fish testing in a multiplex assessment of a patient's tumor are going to outperform our old warhorses, which are really immunohistochemical assays. This concludes our program. Special thanks to our speakers, and thank you for listening. This is Dr. Neil Love for Breast Cancer Update. 